you so you just did one for your sister you did a, you did a lighthouse that was a silver maple it cut really nice i didn't know how it would go honestly uh, like i said i i fly blind into some situations <laughs> i don't think they want you know a 10 foot tall huge lighthouse uh is a little bit too much for the neighborhood and you know the aesthetic of the neighborhood it would be kind of something i mean a 10 foot tall lighthouse would go well in front of a business yes in front of a residence maybe not maybe you want to make it a little more quaint and in wellesley massachusetts yeah which is yeah it's not gonna work i mean someone might like it but i i thought the size matters and stuff i always try and think of it being when they're on site they have to fit in the surrounding area Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whiteout, Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human, those who've taken the risk to live fully and to realize their dreams. Today, we actually have my cousin, Matt Owensworth, who is an award-winning chainsaw artist, a former arborist slash tree climber slash tree trimmer. He was also a varsity uh, wrestler at the University of Virginia. Matt, thanks for joining us. This is awesome. Hey, Chris. Good to see you. Good to see you. Now, this is something I want to know how you got to the point of being a chainsaw artist. I mean, you grew up in Philly. You're making all of these animals. And my father still talks about the time when you guys thought that the chickens were pigeons because you'd never seen any, you know, that this is the relation. It's like, that's what you saw in Philly. They were all, all pigeons, right? So how did you go from that to this? Well, it was turkeys, first of all. We drove by the turkey farm and I said, look at all those pigeons. So, yeah, I've come a long way from there. I, uh, <laughs> as soon as I left Philadelphia, I basically got into the woods and learning about that kind of thing. And I've gone, I spent most of my time since then, last 20 years doing that. And how I got to do chainsaw art is a, that's a long and winding road, I guess. I Let's take a step back then. Let's talk about how did you get into the arborist part of it? Like the arborist, the tree tri climbing, because that, that, or tree trimming, but that led to the the art, didn't it? I'll start in the beginning. Okay. In high we had a senior project and we had, everyone had to get a sort of internship. And uh, my mom had worked at the Mars Arboretum in uh, Philadelphia. And someone suggested that because I had kind of I was kind of a hyperactive sort of fella, so they thought that tree climbing would be a good fit for me. And I started tree climbing then. And then I started doing it every summer when uh, I went to school and I'd come back and do some tree trimming. And then uh, I just I tried my hardest to not trim trees, but I just kept on going back to the job. <laughs> I just. I went to Maine and cut down a ton of trees in Maine, learned how to do felling and things like that from the 1998 Chainsaw Champion, learned from the best. <laughs> and man, he could cut down trees. I bet. So I spent a lot of times, I mean, I tried, I really wanted to work for the Park Service eventually. Uh, and then that was one of my goals. I thought that would be a really cool thing to do is to work. Uh, as a park ranger or something. And I thought that would be a good path in life. And every time I got a job, I ended up cutting down a lot of trees in parks. It seemed like I cut the snowmobile trail, which was, uh, but I mean, and it was in an area that has tons of trees anyway. So I don't think the forest was really missing very much from our little path creation. What did it mean? You were saying you were, you're felling trees but then you were also trimming trees. So that meant that you were climbing trees to get up into trees to, to trim branches or from a cherry picker, or how would you do it? Any way possible. I mean, uh, in the beginning, when I first started, we always joke uh, amongst other arborists that like, you know, when I started, there was no helmets. So, and then there was this whole period of time when they started introducing safety gear like helmets. 
And uh, there was a lot of resistance from us people who started out without helmets because we'd always joke, where is the, how are we going to get hit in the head if you're climbing? <laughs> like you're above everything that will hit you in the head. So, uh, so I started really early and we, the, at first I started, when I first started out, there was a lot of uh, no buckets. There was just climbing on ropes and kind of, there's been a lot of technological evolution in the tree trimming industry. And then when I ended after about 16 to 20 years, when I stopped and started chainsaw carving, I was mostly riding a crane ball into a tree and strapping for big removals. So I'd strap the crane to the tree to the crane and then make a big cut and remove large pieces of wood that way. So there is also, ways to do it and i think i've done almost every way you can possibly get up a tree <laughs> but i love climbing so it didn't bother me that much so you love climbing but there was there was a science and an art to trimming trees too wasn't there i mean in some ways it sounds like you know for those uneducated for those of us who are uneducated it's not like well you go chop a tree down you go cut a tree down you you trim off some branches it's all good but there was there was really a science and an art to what you were doing, though, wasn't there? Yeah, actually, there's a lot of risk management. I mean, every day you're kind of calculating, will this hit the roof? Will this not hit the roof? Or will I, if I drop the uh, huge enough piece, will I break a sidewalk? Will I break their driveway? You're constantly trying not to break things. And every so often you do break things. And then basically you lost the job. The, you did a lot of work for nothing. Yeah because you end up having to pay for whatever you broke. And so there is kind of, there's an art to it. There's all sorts of rigging. I mean, you could spend a whole podcast or plus talking about rigging and uh, the ins and outs of the ropes and the knots and the new techniques that they have. And there's just, it's a lot. It's, uh, it's really interesting and it's never boring. That's why I kind of kept doing it. I never got tired of until I got, tired of doing it uh, it was very entertaining and i never watched the clock which was a nice uh a nice change from a lot of the other jobs i've had in the past where you know you have to work a 10-hour day and you have nothing to do and it's kind of you're just sort of watching time slip away which was kind of boring to me i'd much rather work much harder i guess and be entertained because <laughs> well, you told me at one point that you were particularly good at some cut that you know placing a cut that, that that then in some ways was the gateway to to making it an art form is this true i pride myself uh money cuts that's what we call it <laughs> you don't mess it up it's first try like if i make a pie cut or whatever um the pie cut is what you use to make a directional make the tree go hopefully the same direction as the pie cut and uh prided myself on not missing like every time it'd be one two three cuts so you do you make the pie with two cuts and then you make your back cut and there'd be no hemming and hauling about uh doing it right the the first time i would no matter the size i tried to go for perfect cuts all the time and it's something i really prided myself on and that's yes that's true how i got into chainsaw art was because I was getting too old for, uh, not too old, but too tired to keep on doing it at the speed and vigor that I was doing it before. And I had to kind of take an assessment of my skills <laughs> and I'm really good at cutting with the chainsaw. So <laughs> there we go. And I was like, oh, you know, how hard could be? I love drawing. So I, I had a book on chainsawing bears and my wife wanted a bear. So I made her one. And I thought maybe this would be the nice marriage of sort of two skills. And it was. And I've been doing it for a, lot, a while now, about seven years. <laughs> How big was that first bear? So she wanted a bear and you read a book and thought, well, I'm pretty good with a chainsaw. I can draw. Did you go through the whole process? Did you draw it out beforehand? Yeah, I tried to. I mean, it's been a very long uh, a lot of learning has gone on between when I started and now. Uh, and the first, at first, I had all sorts of ideas. I'd put it on paper and 
eventually you just have to start cutting. So, and that bear was probably four feet tall, maybe four and a half. So it was pretty big. And that, that's kind of a repeating thing, theme for, I always go in kind of way over my head on uh, some of these things. Like the, when I first started, I didn't know what I was doing. I just had a hope and a prayer that you could actually make a living. I read about it in the same book that I read. He put down how much you could expect to make. And I was like, well, shoot, this sounds great. I'm going to, I'm going to become a chainsaw artist. <laughs> so as usual, I always think if you're going to get good at something, you have to learn from the best. So I went to a competition that I had no business being in and got totally, uh, I didn't do it very well, but it was, and the tree was enormous. Like I, I never did anything that big. And I remember being very nervous and uh, it was kind of funny because I felt I've done so many dangerous things with the chainsaw in my hand. I remember being like, once the chainsaw started, I kind of relaxed. <laughs> it was like, I've been here before. It's been very dangerous. We can do this. And this isn't dangerous. This is just making artwork. So, right. I mean, it's dangerous in another way, right? I mean, we can perceive emotional distress in the same way that we can physical distress too right so <laughs> there's that <laughs> what can you describe what a competition is like because you said you went to a competition do you have to apply to get into a competition do you have to get vetted to get in uh you're paying and then how does it work like in terms of do they give you the piece of wood do you get to choose your piece of wood there's a time limit right on on how you how, how does how does this all work well there is a there's a there are a bunch of different styles of competition and the one i entered was like a you would call it a judged competition so when you show up there's a bunch of logs up to eight to twelve carvers and so there's eight to twelve car uh logs set up in a row on either side so there's like an alley in between and uh and when you show up on uh tuesday or uh, late Tuesday or something during the week, then you get, you draw cards and whoever gets highest card gets first pick. And then you go on down the list to, you get whatever log you, you get. And um, then you have till whenever the event ends, which is usually late Saturday. So you have till Saturday afternoon. So usually three to four days to get it done. And then you get judged and then they have the awards. Um, and Different shows do different things. Sometimes they auction off your piece at the end. And uh, sometimes the town keeps them for the town just to decorate the, the whole town. And uh, there's two ways. That, I mean, that's the way they do it. But um, what else was I going to tell you about competitions? And sometimes there's prize money too, right? What's that? There's prize money as well, isn't there? There's prize money. So, yeah, it's usually depends what show it is but it's up to two thousand dollars to win and then some variation beyond that you know fifteen hundred for second thousand dollars for third place um so that's not, and then they give you free hotels and food for the duration which is nice and if you bring your family it's really nice because sometimes they give you pool passes and other fun things to do for the kids so so it could be a nice little family mini vacation while you're working they can do fun things so do you come in with a drawing or with a bunch of drawings do you come in with ideas because you don't know which piece of wood you're going to get and how that's going to fit right yeah usually i have a theme but i don't have and i try not to have a solid idea because you can get uh the a piece of wood that won't work for what you want to do i mean i've had ideas and gone in there with these plans that i want to do something and then i get a piece of wood that's not even possible or kind of worth doing it because it's all about scale so the amount of wood you have is as big as it can be so if i want to do a huge sasquatch there's only if i get a tiny little log it's really hard to make it happen what happens with like for the chainsaw artists, are there are there kind of like the criteria that you have? Like one, you're producing art, right? So so it's the overall scope of what of what your end product looks like, you know, the feeling of it, et cetera, et cetera. There's that part. 
but but sort of the unwritten rules for chainsaw artists is, is there a part of like okay if it's better if it's all one piece as opposed to like creating other pieces that then you have to attach to it uh, do you is there any criteria that you guys look within the you know outside of judging outside of the the customers but that you look at and go no, that's that's how you do it. You create it all out of one piece or something. Is there anything like that? Sometimes, but not usually anything goes. And that's kind of the way I, I like it that way. No rules. We're not, I don't like rules. And I don't, a lot of the other chainsaw carvers, they kind of, as long as it looks nice and, you know, you can do it sloppily, you know, if the joints and things, you can do it in a nice way where you can barely tell that it happened. And uh, some people are experts at it, and it's amazing. It looks like one piece of wood when they're all done slicing it and putting it all back together. Uh, me, personally, I like to do very little um, additions. might be because I'm not the greatest at making joinery. So, uh, And also, I really I kind of prefer the whole solid one piece of wood thing. Um, but sometimes you need to you need to do it because uh, the way wood works, you know, if you think of a piece of wood, when you chop wood, you always chop, you don't chop the side, you chop to the top from to the top circular part because it breaks the grain. Yeah, with the grain. And if you go against the grain, it's not going to work out. So say you built an eagle head that extends beyond the main body of the trunk and it's separate from everything else. If the grain's running, uh, up and down, then it's more likely that you can break a, a beak off or, and in time it might, you know, it, it'll be more fragile than if you cut the head off, rotated it so the grain goes out horizontally and then it's much more strong. So sometimes there's advantages to additions and things like that, that it's totally worth doing, so. Does the wood speak to you in, in some way? I mean, I remember reading about like Michelangelo talking about like marble and stuff that it's like that, that it, it it's there and it's a matter of sort of unearthing it and, and the communion with the, with the elements and stuff like that. Is there wood that speaks to you? Are, are you like Michelangelo, I guess is what I'm asking. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, very metaphorically speaking, it speaks to me because I always say it's like a conversation you're having because I have an idea and then I start cutting into the wood and I might find a hollow or some what we call included bark where the branches grew, grew together and there's there's bark on the inside of the wood, which is no good. So and pieces of rot and things like that. So there's my idea. And then the wood comes back to me and says, that's not going to really work out, buddy. So then... I have to come up with another idea. So it's more of a conversation where, you know, this might work, but then all of a sudden this doesn't work. You have these great plans. This even happens when I do on-site jobs for customers. We have these great plans to do drawings and then I cut into it and there's something totally wrong with our plan. So we have to make an adjustment or, you know, figure something else out because so these are custom pieces, right? So the people who come to you are coming to you with an idea of what they want from the art. And then you're the one who's who's executing this this custom piece, right? So how much of a challenge is that? Because then you're you're communing with the wood, trying to figure out how can we get how can we do what they want to get done here? Honestly, I love the the collaboration process with the customers. Uh Sometimes people just let me go have at it and do whatever. I mean, they give me very loose guidelines and they just say, you do what you do and make it happen. Then other times it's more involved. And sometimes the customer's ideas are fantastic. There are things I wouldn't have thought of. And that's why that really brings me a lot of joy is when we can sort of have work together and make something really cool. Uh, that's, that's one of my favorite times in carving is because uh, a lot of times it's like a journey you have to you're showing up but you're with ideas and your experience but a lot of times you're going on a little mini adventure and you start carving you get involved with the wood and then ideas come to you and plans change so 
What's the physical part about it? You talked about being nervous before your first, before your first competition, but the physical part, like you're, you have a chainsaw. This is the, you're not dropping weight like you were going into a wrestling competition, but at the same time, I mean, you might be dropping weight as you're, as you're chainsawing away in the middle of the summertime, but what's that like? Because I mean, it's, there's a, there's a huge physical part, right? Yeah. There's a huge physical part. And sometimes it's nice because the physical part will definitely erode your nerves. Cause as you know, the more tired you get, the less you really have energy to be nervous about things. So, but the less, less skill, less precision you have too, the more tired you are. That is well, yes, that's also kind of true. There's sort of a an entropy going on. <laughs> just trying to survive at, at a certain point sometimes. But uh yeah, it's really physical. I mean, this summer it's kind of funny. I can tell this summer after every major show I uh would spend a day or two sleeping afterwards. Cause at the shows you don't tend to sleep a lot lot and it's uh ten to twelve hour days generally. And, uh, you know, if you spend 10, 12 hours a day with a chainsaw in your hand, you're going to be pretty tired at the end of four days, even if you are in the best shape in the world. So, yeah, it's very physical. Um, it's hilarious, though. Sometimes the bigger gut you have, you can kind of rest the chainsaw on your belly and it's a bit easier. <laughs> so that's kind of nice. So I've been working on my gut. <laughs> the eat to win program. I like it. This is good. Yeah, exactly. What do you use? Because for those of us on the outside, we're thinking chainsaw is like one thing there, you know, it's, it's a chainsaw, but how many different chainsaws are you using and how many different implements are you using? Right. Cause it's not, it's not always just a chainsaw, but is it more pure if you're just using a chainsaw as opposed to like chisels and sandpaper and whatever? Uh, like go back to the no rules thing for me. I use whatever I can get my hands on that I think will do a, like it uh, that will do a better job. But you also realize as soon as you get up for me, as soon as I put down the chainsaw, things slow down incredibly, and I have no patience. And if I think like sometimes I've done this where I've gone to a smaller tool and I spent a lot of time trying to make something, and then I realized that I could have done that with a chainsaw. So the next time around. Uh, I'll spend more time with the chainsaw and get it down to the size I need it a lot closer than I would before because uh, I realize how slow and kind of sometimes silly it is to sit there and try and whop off a big piece of wood when you have a chainsaw and you can just do it with the chainsaw. It's so much easier. It's, the, it's really great. <laughs> So how many different chainsaws do you have, like different lengths, different widths oh, of yeah. chainsaws? So I have up to a 90cc saw, and I think eventually I'll probably get the bigger one, which is the chainsaws run from probably 30ccs up to 90. Uh, now, what do you mean by a cc? Is that the engine? Yeah, that's the engine size. So every chainsaw company has their own unique way of putting numbers on chainsaws. So the smallest ones are more in the homeowner slash tree trimmer. Uh, if you're up in a tree, it's light enough that you can hold it with one hand, which is basically what you want out of a small lightweight chainsaw, but it's not very powerful. So that I use for most of uh, the lightweight ones I use for all the detail where you're going to be holding a saw for hours. Um, I also use an electric saw for a lot of that too, because uh, the electric saws are great. They're for as long as you don't have to take out huge pieces of wood, they're fantastic. And then you have to use pull cords or anything like that. It's great. And they're lighter, I assume, too. Actually, with the if you have the battery attached to your hip, they're lighter. But if they're in your in the saw, it's still pretty uh it's pretty heavy compared to you have some of the other saws I have. Is one arm definitely way stronger than the other? Uh, I don't know, but I've all, I've pulled my, uh, one of the reasons why I got out of tree climbing is because I pulled my, both my biceps at one point and I couldn't even hold like a pot of coffee. I remember I was kind of hip heisting it into the coffee pot. It was really bad. And then it's kind of been a nagging injury is that, and so to 
long story short, I've re-injured both my biceps <laughs> with the chainsaw. So I guess it's kind of even. And you have to move wood around all the time, which is no small feat. So the wood does not get lighter. No. And you're starting with some big, some big wood, but then also you start with the bigger chainsaw. So like what kind of a length would the bigger chainsaw be? Right now, I think I have on my biggest chainsaw, a 32 inch bar on it. And then, uh, so there's another size above that, that one that I don't own and I haven't really needed, but the bigger the saw, the faster things go generally. So, or sometimes what I like to do a lot of, we kind of try and build hot rods out of our saws because I mean, that I don't do too many crazy things, but you want a big engine, small bar, small enough. But then there's a point where it's too dangerous to have that small of a bar on that big of an engine, because if you lose the chain, then, you know, you don't want to get hit by the chain because, you you know, chains are sharp, sharp, because it's not good. And uh, so there's a little game you play and then they've come out with new technology, narrow curve technology and things like that, where it's a skinnier uh, mark. So the chainsaw width is important. So I think of friction, you know, the, the width of the cut uh, really matters. So if you have a narrower, narrower chain, narrower chain, then things go faster. And that's, uh, that's kind of the hot rodding we do. And then there's a specialty bar is the last little piece of changing that most carvers do. Um, there's a dime tip bar. So the tip of the bar is about the size of a dime. And that's what I do a lot of my detailing work. And it's a safety feature too, because uh, it doesn't have as much kickback as it would if you had a sprocket. It's very dangerous with the sprocket to be putting the tip of the chainsaw bar into wood. Uh, it's very dangerous. You can, it, it's what they call kickback. And people have had all sorts of things you don't even want to look at the accidents. Chainsaws ending up in the middle of their shoulders. And, and other body parts. Yeah, it's gross. You don't, I don't even want to talk about it. It's so nasty, but it happens. So you have to be very careful with the chainsaws. But with this one, it's, it's as thin, it's as thin as a dime. So that's a tiny little cut that you're able to make with the tip. So that's where you're getting the detail that you're talking about. Yeah, that's the, that's what you need for the, all the detail. And it really makes a huge difference. You can really You'd be surprised what you can carve with the tip of a chainsaw. It's it's pretty impressive. It still impresses me. Sometimes I don't believe that I can do it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, wow, that really, that can came out. That's nice. All right. <laughs> How does that work? Because you do a lot of drawing too, right? So you're drawing as part of, as part of, developing your eye more you're actually selling your your watercolors as well right yep yep that yeah that was a uh, oh man what a long and winding road so when i first started chainsaw carving the color is adding color to your carving is a big thing uh well a more popular thing now it really makes them pop too it's i don't do it often i try and keep the grain of the wood in there but sometimes you need you know if you're doing a toucan it doesn't look very toucan-y with you don't without the color so it really adds a little something to it and i knew nothing about color mixing my wife would make fun of me about how terrible i was at the color wheel and things like that so i decided i was going to get into watercolor painting because uh like i said before i'm very impatient and that's the nice thing about watercolors is you can get a lot done very quickly you have to get a lot done quickly a lot of times you have to and i i love that part about watercolors actually is the you know extreme focus for short spurts and then having to wait and I, it's it's really fun game to play i guess is for me <laughs> what's the what's the evolution of chainsaw art because i've read some of the places i mean what what you're going to like uh chuck wagon and chainsaws and and some of these i mean these these sound so western and you know i mean it, it really is i mean it sounds like it sounds like you're coming out of the woods kind of thing or you're going back in years but how has this come from like the totems back in like the puyallup fair 
to what you're seeing now and what is what is your goal as an artist what are you trying to represent uh let's see for the history of chainsaw carving i don't know if i'm qualified to talk about i know there have been a lot of people i've met who thought they invented it so that it's been independently uh discovered a few times <laughs> um let's see it started out uh i think i would say the northwest is probably where it first got really popular um and then there's a, a huge event in pennsylvania uh ridgeway pennsylvania which is kind of like the united states uh big big shindig i don't know where tons of carvers at least used to descend on ridgeway pennsylvania and uh it was there would be a big showcase and people would learn from each other like 200 plus carvers which is an insane amount so it's grown every year because people get into it and they add their own little uh specialty to it like me i'm i came from a chainsawing background and tree removal background and other people come straight out of art school or they've um you know some people are just have been in business or you, you never know where they've but they add something like their own little touch to it from their own background. And that has helped everyone grow. And it's the community around the chainsaw carvers is really spectacular where people will, I've been, you know, people put you up in their house for a few days. You can go carve at their house. And it's such a really opening and fun thing to do open and fun thing to do. Go meet other carvers and have, you know, you share and steal their ideas. It's fun. Well, I would imagine your studio. I mean, do you want to call it a studio? How does that work? Because this is because you're creating. I mean, sometimes you're creating outside. Sometimes you're creating from a, a, a tree that has been felled. So so wood that actually has roots. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's an independent piece of wood, you know, whether a block or whether a, a, a with bark on it. What do you have for a studio? How do you, what kind of a creation place do you have? Because I'd imagine you're learning from all those people that you're talking about, that you're looking at their setup going, oh, that's pretty cool. I could see if I can incorporate that in what I have. Yeah, yeah. Well, the studio thing, uh, I used to have a studio until the county came and took it away. So, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I guess I was in the floodplain. I I basically, I, I, been trying to find a new place but uh they're not making it easy there's a lot of rules that, that you have to go through and so for now i am working out of my garage basically which is it is it's actually with the new um the new improved electric saws it's actually not that bad you don't want to run a chainsaw indoors uh, generally because it's it's loud and it you're going to die of carbon monoxide poisoning probably <laughs> it might be able to be done but i don't really want to go there i mean it would be like putting a lawnmower on in a garage and hanging out there all day that's not something you want to do so so you're doing it in your garage what's cleanup like after a day's work well i have free mulch for my yard which is nice i uh <laughs> yeah it's uh it's true i get to put a lot of mulch out there which is good for our colorado climate because we don't get a lot of rain um and uh i guess i have to clean it pretty hard once a week when i was working out working outside which is awesome uh you don't have, really have to do anything except for the mountain of sawdust does get to be a little intense at times so you have to go through it once a year and uh spread it around your yard so <laughs> That's what I've been doing, at least. <laughs> That's awesome. So wood carving has really effectively been around forever, right? I mean, this is like, you know, sort of the equivalent of like Lesco, those kinds of things. Like it's been around forever. Somebody's been carving wood, but the problem with wood is that it doesn't last forever. Well, there's a, I'm pretty sure it's Michelangelo has still has a wood carving somewhere in Europe which looks pretty nice <laughs> which is awesome it's great but that's that's one of the problems though isn't it i mean just 
that that there's a temporary nature that wood will effectively decay at some point. Most wood will. What do you use for wood? And how do you play with that evolutionary part? Because you can go and create something, but then as it dries, it can crack. And does that become part of the sculpture? How does how so what is the what's the wood that you use and how do you how do you account for the way that it's going to evolve after you leave it? Well, there's uh two ways you can go. There's the leave it situation where you it's a the gains character as they say through the through the years and the weathering process um and also you can go through and put wedges in that and you cut wedges to the cracks and fill them all back up and then smooth everything out again and uh that's the other way to go usually what i do is if they're the main features like a face or uh another kind of main feature a focal point if that is developing a big crack i'll generally fix that which i mean putting a, a wedge in there and then uh gluing it in and then recarving around it and the most important thing to keeping carvings alive is uh keeping up with the stain so if you ever had a wood deck uh and you don't stain it for a few years you might be putting your your foot through the deck so it's the same thing <laughs> <laughs> so um with some carvings have lasted long i mean i have carvings here uh seven years old that look pretty much the same way when i i did it when i carved it um but now there's other ones that i did nothing to and they don't look that good so so it's the pr preserving it with the stain what kind of wood do you use because it's generally softer wood right wood that i use i would say yeah soft wood is the best uh not dry is also another nice thing yeah i like it green so the drying process will happen uh after i carve it um and i say yes to more woods than i say no to so like around here it's colorado so we don't have a huge selection of wood so it's pine cottonwood elm trees things i would say no to in colorado or would charge a ton of money for would be a honey locust, um, sometimes ash trees, and the ash trees are tricky now because of the ash borer, and those, the ash borers can leave huge holes coming out, because um, a lot of times after you carve whatever resident, because there's lots of bugs live in trees, and whatever was living in there, they, that's kind of the eviction notice when you, when you carve the tree, and you put the stain on it, they want out, and uh, sometimes that happens as you, get done carving and uh there's some emergent emerging holes from whatever was in there coming out and the ash borer leaves huge ones the and sometimes it looks really bad so not to mention ash is really hard and the heart of the wood it's harder on my equipment and it takes forever and a lot of times i'd have to replace the my chainsaw bars because it it's so much uh friction it, it heats up the bars too much and over the course of a carving, it basically destroys the my chainsaw bars. Do you do you have a favorite? I mean, it sounds like cedar also is is one that's, oh, yeah. that's top of the list, but you might not get as much cedar in Colorado as they do in the Pacific Northwest, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, the redwood is from the Pacific Northwest is the one of the most coveted pieces of wood. But me getting my hands on it here in Colorado is very unusual. But for Colorado wood, the ponderosa pine is possibly my favorite because it doesn't crack that much. Um, and it usually cuts pretty nicely. I mean, it's not. So on the East Coast, they love the white pine. I don't know if you remember the white pines. Mm -hmm. Sure. That cuts like butter, apparently. Uh, I think I cut a little bit of that. But here in Colorado, everything's a little bit has more knots. Uh, there's less clean wood. So it's always a little bit of an effort, but the ponderosa pine is my favorite of all pines. I get really excited when someone wants me to carve a ponderosa at their house because I know that that tree is going to look nice for years. So there's other trees where you're like, ah, you know, I might be back here next. You know, I just finished a Siberian elm and who knows next year I'll probably have I'm saving some wood back from it so I can put wedges in it. 
because I know I have a feeling that I'm going to have to do some repairs <laughs> or fixing some cracks in some major location. You, so you just did one for your sister back on the East Coast. You, yeah, did, that was... you did a lighthouse, which was yeah. amazing. I remember I, I saw it. And and how did that all come together? Because what kind of wood was that? That was a uh, silver maple. Silver maple. Okay. Yeah, that's where you get your, you know, the maple sugar. For mm -hmm. It cut really nice. I didn't know how it would go, honestly. Uh, like I said, I, I fly blind into some situations <laughs> and just crossing my fingers. Everything's going to go great. If it doesn't, then, you know, I'm okay with a little bit of suffering, I guess. It's not that bad. So they felled a tree in their yard. And how much of the tree did they leave for you to work with? They left me 10 feet, but I cut it down because uh, a little bit more um Let's see, because I could only bring so much scaffolding was one thing. I didn't really have scaffolding. So I brought my, I have some, uh, I guess they're drywall benches that you can put on uneven ground. They're really nice, but that'll get you up to about seven or eight feet. But I thought for her neighborhood, it, you don't, I mean, I know Meg and Sam that really well, and I don't think they want, you know, a 10 foot tall, huge lighthouse. Uh, is a little bit too much for the neighborhood and, you know, the aesthetic of the neighborhood. It would be kind of something. I mean, a 10 foot tall lighthouse would go well in front of a business. Yes. In front of a residence, maybe not. Maybe you want to make it a little more quaint and in Wellesley, Massachusetts. Yeah. Which is, yeah, it's not going to work. I mean, someone might like it, but I, I thought the size matters and stuff. I always try and think of it being, when they're on site, they have to fit in the surrounding area. So you started with a 10-foot piece. You cut it down so that it would work with your scaffolding and so that it would fit into the neighborhood. But one of the things that you look like you do, and and I don't know if this is particular, it seems like uh, you you will put animals in that are that are sort of like in hiding kind of thing or just just emerging out of out of the the hole in the in the wood or or uh you know and you put in some of those details in the lighthouse as well where you see like some of the bricks or whatever you know that it that it effectively built the lighthouse and is that is that more of a signature for you are there other people that are doing that or it it looks it looks different than what i'd seen before i don't know if uh i know other people that do it um I really like having the idea of, you know, like when you're a little kid and you're walking around, because I used to go to the art museum all the time and I have fond memories of walking around. And if you put something small that was really, you know, small and fun inside your carving and I saw it, it would make me like your carving even more. And I like little surprises like that. And I think of like a, a little kid walking around the, the carving. So you see there, there's a main focal point, but then you walk around and you see other things and hopefully it gets uh, someone else's imagination going. And, you know, they can imagine the world that this is actually happening. You know, like I put a frog in on makes a large frog, a little bit too big maybe, but, you know, just a little whimsy goes a long way sometimes. <laughs> but there's a connection to the frog too, isn't there? I mean, isn't that part of the story? Because you're creating a story. Yes. This is when we're going to talk about your mom and my mom. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, if you didn't know, the, they seem to be into uh, things that change. Like your mother was butterflies and my mother was uh, frogs. You go from the tadpole to the frog. So uh so the butterfly thing became a real big deal to me because I, I had to look up what was so interesting about butterflies that my Aunt Nancy would find this fascination with butterflies. So I did my own research and kind of came to my own conclusions. And I found out that butterflies, a lot of times, when they get in their cocoon, they have to completely uh, dissolve themselves. And sometimes when they're in their worm, their, I don't know what they're called, worms or whatever they Marvel are. Marvelous state when, kind of thing, yeah. Yeah, sometimes the beginnings of their wings are underneath the skin. And I, I thought that was such a powerful thing to me that sometimes your potential is actually there, but you might not realize it. 
And sometimes to get to that potential, say like uh, to become the beautiful butterfly, um, you have to dissolve yourself. Like maybe your ego or something in you has to be let go of for you to transform into something better or, you know, more beautiful or whatever you want to be. That I just love that analogy. And uh, I've even made, I've made a painting about it. Like I call it the bear and the butterfly where a bear is sitting there and the butterflies on the nose. And sometimes I feel like the bear, like this dumb kind of lumbering thing. Not, I love bears, but uh, you know, they're big lumbering guys. And you're like, how do I go from here to there? And I, I always thought that was such a, an interesting thing. And it's something I, I think about all the time is uh, transformation and how you can always change and you can always get better. So I always, I really thought that was cool. And I don't have a story for frogs. Sorry, mom. Just. <laughs> well, it's and the effort of getting better too, isn't it? I mean, I think it's like the butterfly has to be strong enough to be able to actually emerge from the cocoon and, and then be ready to fly, you know? So there's so many different sort of metaphors for who we are as people, who, who you are as an artist as well, I would imagine. It's very key to what I, my philosophy is about the, you know, a lot of effort can sometimes result in something amazing if you are willing to to go for it you know because uh if you put in the effort you, you never know what's going to happen it might not be what you want but something will happen <laughs> but yeah but it but it is also those little i mean it's it's the transformation of the frog it's the transformation of the butterfly but it's also those those little things that you were saying you put in there for your younger self, which hopefully you are a good representation of the younger selves that get a chance to look at what you're doing. Because it's 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 funny, like looking at that kind of a sculpture, it you see the sculpture, like you see the lighthouse, but then those little things are the things that kind of that bring that smile to your face and you go, oh, the lighthouse is beautiful. But then, oh, like this seems so personal. This little thing for me, what's the reaction from, because you said it's for the kids, but I'd imagine it's for the adults or for the kid in the adults as well. That is what makes one of the best things about my job is that sometimes I'm joking, I'm like, I get to make other people happy. And that's such a great, great thing to do yeah i i can't it's hard to express how cool it is to be able to do that um because i you know i finish a big sculpture and just the smiles and the pictures and everything then uh it's really rewarding you know i mean in tree trimming i guess when i used to be a tree trimmer no one would really say good job very rarely and here i mean people pump up my ego ego all the time they're you know, they say, you're so talented and all these things. And it's so nice to hear. And it's also, I mean, those compliments can go a long way. Um, just, uh, you know, random people stopping by saying, I like your work or something is really uh, uplifting. And uh, it's, uh, I, I really admire people who do that kind of thing, uh, go around and spread goodwill, you know. It's really cool. It is. Is is part of it the surprise as well? I think as a chainsaw artist, are you surprising people in terms of what they're what they expect to see from a chainsaw versus what you know from from Matto chainsaw, right? Because you have to have your you have to have your chainsaw handle as well. When you come in as Matto chainsaw, you know, the your the their expectations might be a little bit different than what you come out with like looking at the lighthouse i mean like that is so refined i mean it has a light on the top of the lighthouse as well and i mean it's a functioning lighthouse i don't know that it has a caretaker or anything but uh but it does work <laughs> is that some of what you're what you're trying to do because i mean it's like as a chainsaw artist you are you're responsible for not only your own art but representing the art form as well yeah, I mean, I don't really think of it as chainsaw art. The, in my mind, the chainsaw is just a tool or a means to an end. Uh, 
because I have the, a huge connection with chainsaws, I don't, I don't even think about it that much, honestly. It's, it's like something that's so normal to my life that I don't, I don't think about chainsaws as something different or powerful, or I think they're an amazing tool. Um, but I, that's all it is to me is a, a tool. And most of my time I spend looking at, um, other sculptures. A lot of times it's not even wood sculptures. I like looking at the, some of the old masters and things like that. And, uh, I don't consider it as that's, I'm not trying to push it one way or the other. I just want to push myself is really what it comes down to is I don't think about the greater picture. I only think about my own personal improvement and uh, what I want to see at the end of the day. And I kind of like realism. So we just kind of go down that path and see how far um, I can go. And yeah, honestly, this year I might take a little turn away from realism. So turn away into what? I mean, abstract or what do you? A little bit. Uh, I think I'm going to head towards a little more whimsical. Um, trying to make it more expressive and more of a story, uh, less of a, for for now, for the beginnings, I've been trying to make it look like a real animal that kind of getting that majestic feeling of an animal in the woods. Or I think of those, I want you to walk by it and not, there's not a whole lot of story, just sort of a feeling to, to it. But uh, this year I'm gonna try and do some I got some new things I'm gonna try and do like uh tell some stories there's hopefully like I said I have some ideas I want to do some singing frogs for a competition and you know yeah I'm gonna get a little crazier this year or a little bit different from what I normally do so and I'm excited for it so well you have to keep evolving as an artist if you're not evolving you're you're not you're not pushing the envelope. You're not getting any better. You're not, you're not challenging yourself. Who are your heroes and influences for artwork, for the work that you're doing or in general? I mean, cause it might well find its way into your artwork as well. Right. Like, I don't know. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Ooh. Well, there's Rodan. Um, but I mean, I grew up, there's the Rodan museum near my house. So, um, where I grew up in Philadelphia, there was the Rodin Museum. Not now. Uh, let's see. There's so many. I love it. I love so many sculptures and sculptors and artists. I mean, I learn a lot from uh, uh, this guy, Aaron Blaze. He's a Disney animator. Um, I subscribe to his. Uh, he has a, a website and has all sorts of lessons and lectures on animal anatomy and things like that and uh i learned a lot from him that who's been a huge great resource for me uh to grow um let's see who else i can't really remember i can't think of anything off the top of my head honestly <laughs> i can think of other chainsaw carvers that i absolutely love there's bob king just samadowski there's tons that uh I I watch them in the local ones like my friend Bongo Love uh, and uh, Ken Braun. Uh, you know, these guys are all fantastic. Joe Serholtz, uh, you know, these are all just Colorado guys that I, I admire and uh, get. I draw a ton of inspiration from because uh, they they do all sorts of crazy stuff and it's fun to watch. You just you go and see what they do and then you get a little jealous and you're like, I want to do that. That like that was so cool. I I really want to do an angler fish with a light on top. My friend Joe Serholtz uh, showed me uh, this carver, Justin Driver made it. And it is awesome. It's in his living room. And I was like, I need to have one of those. I'm not even going to sell that. I'll probably just put it in my house. Because it's really cool. <laughs> I hope I can do it. <laughs> How much of it? Because going back to the competitions, this is this is making me think of some of the competition stuff too. Because you end up with with the final product, and but some of it is the is the performance art uh, performance art aspect of it, right? That you're talking about these people who've created stuff that you had no idea that just is so surprising to you. 
but also just going from a a a section of a tree to something that's artistic like the performance art part which i'd imagine is a huge part of the competition what is what is that part like because it's so interactive i'm not the most social person in the world i'll put it that sometimes the loudness of the chainsaw i gotta say is such a blessing in disguise for me because then i don't have to be social i just have my chainsaw on my headphones on and I can wave, but we're not going to be able to interact too much usually because I'm standing on scaffolding with a chainsaw and headphones on. So there's only so much, but I think, uh, you know, it's really fun to, to mingle with the crowd and everything sometimes for me, but not all the time. So that's why it's nice to have the, the separation and they get to see your vision revealed in a relatively short period of time. It gets even, there are things called quick carves where we make things in an hour at shows. So they're usually in com com in combination with the, the main piece, we'll do quick carves, which would be like an hour demo of whatever you can get done an hour, in an hour. And I've been doing it for a while now, so I can do on a good day, two to three things uh, in one hour. Wow. Yeah. It's, Sometimes I can't, I couldn't do it normally, but it, when you have a crowd watching, you know, you get a little bit of an adrenaline buzz and somehow work faster. Cause I, I honestly tried to replicate it here at my house and I, I can't go as fast as I can or somehow summon the amount of focus that I need to do in, during the shows in the summer. But then they get auctioned off, which is also another kind of fun thing. For some people, the auctioneers are sometimes really hilarious people. And uh, sometimes I'm like, this is like extortion. You guys are amazing at your jobs. <laughs> really putting people on the spot. <laughs> They'll point at people. <laughs> it's just money. <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. So where's it? Where's this going for you? You kind of like in the beginning, you said, okay, this book told you that you could actually make a living doing this. Uh, there's one part that's making a living. Then there's the other part of your evolution as an artist. Where is Where do you see that going? How's that arc going? I have no idea, honestly. I, I mean, every year it's like this great reset. We get to the Christmas. I've made it. I made a living this year. And now I get nervous because I have to do it again next year. And I have a few jobs, but not you know, a year's worth of jobs. So I am trying to survive till next year and hopefully I get to make it another year after that. And as long as I get to keep on doing it, I'm going to keep trying hard and trying to get better as, uh, and improve as I go because, uh, I love doing it and I really, don't, it's going to take a lot for me to stop. I mean, I, I don't think, there's going to be any stopping anytime soon, but you never know. Life's funny. Things change. No, it is. And I understand exactly what you're saying, because like as a speaker, I can go through times of being really, really busy. And then you get to the end and you, you think, I wonder if I'm ever going to get hired again. Yeah, and exactly. that, that, that's the worry. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're driving your train all the way to this one point. You're like, yes, I have no more work. Oh no, I have no more work all at the same time. It's just uh, a little bit crazy, but you know, you get it. <laughs> Do you have any, any competitions scheduled for 2023? Like places people might actually go and see you? Well, I'll be going to the usual places, which would be uh, Craig, Colorado, which is around Father's Day. Um, that is Whittle the Wood. And then I usually go to Frederick Chainsaws and Chuck Wagons. Uh, and that is in the middle of July. And then there's Carve Wars, which I'll do Purgatory Resort near Durango. Um, I don't remember where else we're going this year. There's two more. I do usually do two or three Carve Wars. Is a Carve War different than, than a regular competition? or? Yeah, the format's a little bit different where it's an all- 100% auction based so you you are just doing basically a quick carve the whole four days and you make as many pieces as you can and uh 
that it all gets auctioned off on Saturday and Sunday and whoever gets highest in auction wins. So, um, it's a really fun competition. I get, because then you don't have to uh, be all invested in one piece the whole time. You can really, you know, just, you can make whatever you want and kind of do whatever you want. And sometimes it works out. Sometimes it doesn't. It's a real game. That one, I think there's a lot of strategy and, and things like that. And because every town's different. Like I went to uh car wars in Tuckerton seaport and I started first day was doing bears and nobody wanted bears at the auction. I mean, I was making these huge bears and the last show I went to, there was all these guys from Texas with huge pickup trucks. And then we're on the East coast where, you know, everyone's got a hatchback and there's not as many pickup trucks. It just is not as practical. Uh, and so it all kind of dawned on me after the first auction, I was like, Oh, you guys don't have like a huge ranch that you're going to go put this on. <laughs> you have like a, a sea house and you don't really have the space or desire to have a huge bear so we made some adjustments for the sunday auction i did much smaller stuff a lot of sea turtles and things like that which it, you know it really changed the game that's what i mean it's really fun it's a very gamers kind of competition you can change your strategy and things like that well that's awesome so you have the competitions where things get auctioned off then you have, I'm assuming you're doing some on spec that you're just kind of doing your own carvings, whatever you think will be good that, that will end up in your gallery. And then you're doing commissions. Is that how, are those the three components of the business? Pretty much. I have uh, some retail stores around here that carry my stuff. Um, yeah, and that's an aspect that I don't, uh, the inventory, there. there's production carving, which is you. I can do uh, bears very quickly at this point, but I don't like doing bears very quickly because uh, when I used to do tree work, I pruned a lot of ash trees. And after a while, you're just like, I don't want to prune any more ash trees. I'm, and I don't want to get there with uh, carving. I want to you know, keep pushing into the unknown as opposed to doing something I know over and over again. It's more fun for me to go out and explore. That's what gets me excited about carving is trying to find a new level i guess and uh i don't think doing inventory all the time is not it's more of getting a paycheck than pushing the envelope to a new level that's it's nice it's better if i can push the envelope and get a paycheck at the same time is what i'm saying <laughs> that's really what i i much the game i'd rather play <laughs> this is the balance that is a challenge isn't it trying to find a way to to continue to get the the money coming in and continuing to push the art. I mean, this is this is this is ultimately the the artist's dilemma, isn't it? Yeah, and it's uh, I don't know. You can learn doing anything though. So, doing inventory is not bad. I'm not beyond doing inventory or production carving, but uh, it's not necessarily where my heart is. But I still get to carve, which is kind of nice. So, I'll take it. <laughs> This is awesome. I mean, I I so look forward to, and we have a couple of your pieces. I just saw we have one down. I was just doing a little workout beforehand, and we have the uh, the rose that you had given us for for yeah. our uh, for our wedding. But it's also it's a rose that that also kind of looks like you know two hands coming together that that can also look like a heart as well. So there are a bunch of different different parts that are all yeah well done well done so so yeah i mean i i just love what you're doing and love seeing how you continue to push the envelope of 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 what's art you know and i'd imagine that that just gets to be more and more personal the further along you go so i i love that your voice is just continuing to grow and, and develop it's awesome thanks chris appreciate it yeah yeah. So thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it, Matt. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, it's been fun. Hopefully uh, I said something that works for somebody. <laughs> so Matt O. Chainsaw, they can, they can find your work. Your gallery is there. And uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully some people come and find you. So thanks a ton. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing it. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did, please tell your friends, Please also subscribe. If you subscribe to what we're 
to our podcast. We will we will continue to bring you great content, great people, and we look forward to the next time. So we'll see you then. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris White Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.